five, four, three, two, one. What up, Internet? It's John Michael Ryan. And this is Matt Richmond. And we've gotten really good at coordinating the timing of our names, which is really all we can ask of ourselves for this podcast. Which episode is this, John? It really, we don't know yet. Let's say which, it's episode which, If you one. were to guess, yeah, wh- where, would you, where would you place this, not even having had the conversation yet? If you and I are episodes six and seven, I would say that our special guest today is episode one. Okay. I like this. It's a lot of I pressure. I would be episode one. <laughs> I would say that you and I should probably spread ourselves out a little bit, right? Episode 12 and 30. I mean, you're going to ultimately push to delete your episode. <laughs> like what will happen right. is you'll ask, you'll ask Dane just to go ahead and not do it. And then I'll be like, hey, Coanne, where's Matt's episode? And then I'll be like, hey, Dane. And then I'll ask your wife, where's your episode? And that's how I'll have to find it. So, uh, and she'll yeah. say, don't get me started. Every single time. Uh, so we're back with Hey Retriever, or this is the introduction to Hey Retriever in some capacity. <laughs> and All right, let's start over. Start over. You go. Oh, okay. Okay. Hello, Internet, and welcome back to Hey Retriever, a podcast by John McElryan and... Matt Richmond. We could really work on that timing, though. You know? It's like we're hanging on that pause. Yeah. But I like the suspicion, yeah. because what if, what if it's not you this time? Like, what if it's somebody else, and they are not going to know? The listener's yeah, not Yeah, that's why know. I did the robot voice. I thought you, you could suspect us of just putting me in there uh, for the intro, like artificially. Um, hmm. You know. You know, that's a good thought. We could transcribe this and then use one of those, uh, those writing-to-speech robots just to replace you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the old-fashioned word voice. Yeah. So we're back with your favorite podcast that you might listen to, but more importantly, you will now, because today we have a very uh, lovely friend here to speak with us. Yes. Um, welcoming to the podcast our first ever guest, Cami Thomas. Hello. Or subsequently, third or fourth guest. We don't know. But, I mean, in the making of the podcast, first time we've done this. This is, this is correct. Obviously. Cammie, hello to you. Hello to you also. How are you guys doing? Oh, we're good. We're good. Um, how are you today? I'm doing fantastic. It's sunny out. I'm overworked, but happily so. And life is good. Uh, we've been doing a little bit of work together. And you also have other work that is non-retriever related. Uh, how much of that is which one? Um, you know, today has been a whole lot of retriever land because I was in the recording studio with my good friends recording some things. Uh, I don't know how in-depth I can go in here, but you guys know what I'm talking about. <laughs> we were recording like a voiceover thingy. So today has been a very retriever heavy, but in my everyday life or every week life, um, I don't know. I mean, I'd say like probably 80% of what I do is either community-based organizations that reach out to me uh, or passion projects or just other connections that I have from my past lives through Red Bull and and Tesla and stuff like that. So a whole lot of it is just a lot of random stuff that kind of comes my way. And then 
uh, the rest of the stuff is with Retriever, which I would say Retriever is up there of my favorites. Well, let's start there. How did Retriever and you, Cami Thomas, get connected? How, what's, what's the origin story of you and John? Yeah, that's a good question, Matt. Um, Retriever retrieved me in a funny way. Uh, my my guy, Papa, a close friend of mine and somebody that I create with a ton, we intersected when I was doing some freelance producing for a small production house in St. Louis while he was the DP there. And we worked together and we really bonded and we liked the work that we did there, but we kind of talked and thought about the fact that, yo, we want to make some some cool stuff outside of here. Um, so we just started doing that and became really close friends. And one day I was at a concert in Tower Grove Park. Tonina, amazing artist, if you've ever heard her, she like travels around the world. Um, so I was at this outdoor concert. It was super duper loud. My friend Papa calls me screaming on the phone. I'm trying to hear him. He's like, hey, where are you right now? And I'm like, Tower Grove Park, Why? Uh, he's like, there's somebody I want you to meet. He's really, really great. I'm like, okay, do I need to meet him right now? I'm, I'm at a concert. And he's like, yes, you need to meet him right now. So, you know, when Papa calls, I answered. I went outside of the kind of concert area. And there was John in a, well, I don't want to call it a cowboy hat because it wasn't that, but it was a, it was a big hat, John. It was like a, is a John hat. I don't know what it was. And I'm like, this I'm guy a has a vibe. He's a hatsman for sure. So I see Papa standing next to this guy that I now know as JMR uh, with this giant hat on. And he was just like, hey. And I it just, we locked eyes. And I was like, I don't know why, but it seems like this guy is going to be really, really important to me. Um, and that turned out to be the case. So that's how we met. And then we grabbed uh, ice cream, gelato, something. And mm-hmm. uh on South of Grand, and then the rest is history. When what led up to that was, Matt, I, I walked through Outpost, and I saw Jazzy working on this cut uh, of what was summer in St. Louis, and I was like, wait, what is what is that? Because what I saw was better than anything I had in there <laughs> than anything else that I was seeing. And that's and that's where they're like, oh, it's it's, it's Cammy, And Papa's like, oh, you got to meet Cammy, And, you know, Papa, Papa is very much Papa. If, if he has a task at hand, he's going to chase and figure out what what's important to him, um, and he's like, "Oh, I think I think she's at a, a concert tonight," and so that just led to this little journey with uh, Papa and Joe, you know, running around Tower Grove, and then meeting Cammy, and it was a uh, yeah, very very short connection time between seeing something amazing and then meeting the person who made it, and then hearing some of the most amazing music. Uh, it was a great great evening, and that led to dot, 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 what our relationship now, which is, John. Are you asking? Oh, you're, man, I like when I get to answer. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it led, to, it led to a lot of things, right? It led to the bigger conversation um, of what is Retriever and what is the roster and how do we, how can we ultimately start doing um, work that isn't just you or me? We'd already been talking to Isaiah about some of the stills jobs he was doing, and then once I saw Cammy's piece, I was, it kind of, you know, a little lightning bolt happened in my head. And I was like, holy crap, you know, we can bring all of these people together and start trying to do what always is my goal, which is trying to win the commercial work, to then do all the passion work. Um, and that's what led to Cammy being on our roster. So, Cammy, you are a director uh, of film, among other things. How did you become a director? Where, where did your interest in film begin? 
Yeah, you know, my initial interest began when I was a super duper little kid. My dad always had a bunch of video cameras just for, you know, home video kind of vibes. He was not a filmmaker by any means. But back in the day, my sister and I used to make little movies with our Barbie dolls and then just home video kind of scripted things in our backyards of epic tales and then not so epic tales. Uh, videos of which I, I still try to find. I think my sister took them all and burned them because we were very awkward little children. But it goes way, way back to those days. Um, and then I, I went to college for business and I always loved film in another dimension in another lifetime. I would have just went straight to film school and got that done and actually gone that route. Um, but I think just being raised the way that I was and in the family that I was raised within, I, I felt as if going to business school or med school or law school or something like that uh, was the only route to go. So that's the direction that I went. But, you know, even as I worked after I graduated, like worked these corporate jobs, um, I was always near media and near filmmaking. And when I started working for Red Bull, I was always brushing shoulders with Red Bull Media House and the really cool stuff that they were doing over there. So it was always just like right next to me. Um, but I was on my own path and I was like, you know, maybe one of these days I'll kind of venture over there. Um, but then the way I, I would say more formally got into uh, directing and film work was uh, I'm from North County, St. Louis. So specifically the Ferguson, Florissant area. And when I was home for the summer of 2014, I had just gotten back from a trip from Nicaragua and I was there for like two days when I turned on the radio and heard about... Uh, you know, who I now know was Michael Brown, who had been killed in Ferguson by police officer Darren Wilson. And that event completely changed the trajectory of my entire life and what it is that I do. Um, and like a lot of people from the area, in the area, I really felt like I just like totally lost my voice for a while. It felt like Nowadays, it's a lot easier to get people to understand what was going on and what the thoughts and opinions were. But back then, it really felt like no one was listening to us or believed us or wanted to even hear us. And it, it felt like because of that, I felt my voice shrink and shrink until it just wasn't there anymore. But the only thing that brought it back slowly and surely and then eventually more loud was, you know, kind of speaking through a lens. And I thought, even if I can't quite talk or if I don't really know what to say or what to do. Uh, I have this camera, I have my phone. Let me ask people how they're feeling. Let me get some sense of community through capturing things, which eventually turned into interviewing people and then interviewing people more formally. And then I started a, um, a web series or kind of like episodic series called Smoke City following that. So because of that, I sort of put two and two together and thought, you know, it seems like I'm a director. I don't know how that happened, but I'm directing things and making things and releasing things and people are watching those things and covering it in press. And uh, from there, I think I kind of adopted the title. Uh, but that was my journey into it, which it felt like it was my film and, and video and anything to do with the lens was sort of like my lifeline back to myself. Uh, so I'm very, very grateful for the art form. But that's, that's kind of how I found my way into it. There's a lot there to ask about. And I'm, I'm curious, I, I guess I want to step all the way back to your decision about school and kind of work our way through it because it, you know, you sort of had this instinct to pick up a, a camera or tell tell stories, but at that time you kind of denied it uh, to yourself a little bit just because it didn't seem safe or or what what was was there pressure from the folks to to make sure you were 
you know, employable or, or how did that go? Yeah, you know, it's funny. My, my dad is, was a tennis pro and, and taught uh, tennis and coached tennis, coach Venus and Serena and a lot of really, really great other <laughs> tennis players. So his, his career route was untraditional in a sense. His brother played in the NFL. Like, you know, I grew up knowing that even the things that seem like a long shot are possible. So it's not really that my parents said you have to do this or have to do that. But I do think that there was a little bit of an air of professionalism, something uh, kind of floating around my family. Like on both sides of my family, everyone, even up to my great grandparents, have their college degree, which for black families in the U.S. is a complete anomaly. Um so there was always this kind of internal pressure, maybe even from myself seeing that, knowing like I have to continue that legacy in a very specific way. I don't want to be the one who, you know, if my great grandparents were able to do this, their parents were born slave, like if they were able to do this, I need to go this route. Uh, and I didn't want to be the kind of like weak link in the chain, essentially. Uh, so I think a lot of that came from internal. But Really, any decision I've made, if I've said, hey, mom, dad, I'm leaving Red Bull, I'm going to start my production company, I'm going to go figure it out, they've been completely behind me. So a lot of that was just internal. And, you know, like a lot of us, we kind of have to, like, get over that hump ourselves. I, I mean, John, jump in anywhere here, but it, I think the decision not to go to film school is often as valuable as the decision to go to film school uh, for people who end up in film, you know, and not to judge film school harshly or, or whatever, but, you know, there's so much about storytelling that isn't the mechanics of the camera or the, you know, the lighting or whatever. Like, that's all important, but there's also life, uh, and that happens in so many different ways, that coming to film from another route is often just as, you know, valuable, I think. That's something I found very uh, enlivening in our first conversation, Cami, at the Gelateria, was all of the experiences that help build you today, um, coming from a different background, coming from different needs and from different, you know, different industry somewhat, inform you in such a unique way. That resonated with me because I had found another person who similarly had pursued a professional career and then realized, wait, there's something else. And that's something I found kindred with you is that all of the things you had done with Tesla and with Red Bull in uh, the realm of business and, and, and those things were a really easy crossover to my friends and I and to what you were doing um, starting into producing and starting into producing and directing and then solely directing too. Um, the question that comes to mind though is, is you know, you talk about making those backyard uh, movies and all of those things. I did that too, and I didn't give myself um, the ability to consider that a passion for years. I just told myself, well, I just did that as a kid. Uh, so the question for you is, what, how did you explain that to yourself when you started to realize that it was a real passion and that the, the voice that filmmaking gives you was still connected to the things that you did and, and, and played as, as a kid? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I wish I could say that I came to a conclusion by myself and from myself, uh, you know, but honestly, a lot of that came from validation and encouragement from others or people around me, specific friends, particularly I'm thinking of my friend Muhammad, um, who I went to college with and who I've known for a very long time. 
um, other people making the connection for me and saying, hey, this thing you made is really good or your perspective that you bring is really great or it's different or that thing you wrote is unique. Like people feeding that into me, I think is what helped me bridge that gap because otherwise I don't know if I ever would have made that connection to like, oh, what I used to do in the backyard is a real thing. That's actually, that's not just, you know, like I, oh, I learned how to tie my shoes and I went to the playground. It's like, no, those are the roots of what I now spend every single day doing and that I love doing every single day. Um, But I do think the people around me who encouraged me and who kind of dared me to consider myself a filmmaker when I was hesitant to do so are the ones who deserve a lot of that credit for getting me there. Do you think um, the events uh, of Ferguson that that sort of inspired you to pick up that camera, um, do you think you needed something that sort of uh, uh, emotionally sort of compelling or shocking to, you know, give you the bravery to pick up the camera and go out there and just say, you know what, I'm doing this, I'm a filmmaker? Yeah, I think so. In hindsight, of course, I can sort of make that connection. But in reality, I mean, that was a slow burn. That was in 2014. Um, And, you know, it's 2022 now. I would only say the last year or so I have been able to confidently say, like, no, I am a director. That is what I do. That is how I pay my bills. That's a pretty recent thing. So, you know, if my math off the top of my head is right, which it might not be, uh, that's six, seven years of a process between that happening and then me confidently saying, hey, this is what I do. This is my craft. But, you know, in some ways, yes, it was like, okay, a huge shocking event pushed me towards something. But honestly, like, it was something that had been boiling. Even that event happening the way it did is because the community had been boiling. The emotions had been boiling over. And I didn't know for a long time, like, that I I did grow up within that tension. Um, That explosion that happened that year was something that was a long time coming essentially. So I think for me, it was less that it was a shocking event and it was more that the veil was sort of lifted from my eyes and the community's eyes of, okay, uh, what we've been feeling is not, uh, it's not just us. We're in this together. Um, and if we're in this together, looking around you, seeing that you have community, uh, seeing that you have community gives you a lot of bravery. So the event itself didn't push me towards that, but I think realizing that I existed within a community that did understand me and that did want to hear me uh, and support me is what helped me sort of develop that backbone into going towards a riskier career move eventually down the line. This is the part where Dane does a really cool sound thing. Yeah, like a slide whistle. You'd ruined it. He was doing the sound thing. Hold on. Sorry. He starts it again now. And then there's a jet. And like now we're at the ocean. And, and it's from here, on the, the banks of the ocean, on the banks of the, uh, the Mississippi Ocean, we want to talk about influences and inspirations. Ooh. And sound effects. Matt. Sound effects, influences, and inspirations. Love it. <laughs> In that order. <laughs> right. Uh, so, uh, talk to us a little bit about uh, influences. Other, other creators, other directors, other... Hell, makers, I don't care. Um, people who have inspired you and inspire the work that you create and inspire the way that you approach the work that you create. Totally. Also, I'm going to throw these questions back at you guys too because I'm like, I want to know I want to know your answers also. Um, but I mean, I got to just be mad cheesy for a moment and say that my biggest inspiration are my parents. And I mean that like genuinely. Um, 
you know, just watching them navigate the world, this crazy ass city of St. Louis being two black people who did the thing that they wanted to do, which not a lot of people just get to do that. So I think my inspiration as far as like creating freely and just doing what it is you want to do, moving where you want to move is like totally due to them. But in the way of like, you know, that's nice, but people, if they're like, all right, I can't Google your parents and the work that they've done. Um, <laughs> I think that I would say, you know, I look up to Lena Waith a lot um, in her journey of being a writer and being someone who just kind of made their own stuff and then eventually got to star in their own stuff and just tell their stories as a black queer woman, not in a way that had to match any mainstream stories of what it means to be gay or what it means to be openly queer in a space but just her own experience like the the episode that she wrote for um god for master of none that she won mm. the emmy for i forget i think it was like the thanksgiving story or thanksgiving episode i forget what it's called but the whole episode was totally just her experience coming out uh just sort of rewritten and i really respected that because in a way it's almost like a glorified journal that you get to have your memories and your thoughts that otherwise would totally just live in your own head and then eventually slip away as our memory does. To be able to recreate that publicly in front of a camera, I think is just really cool. Um, so I like Lena Waithe for that reason, because she seems to do that a lot. You know, of, of, I think if you ask any, probably anybody in general, but specifically any young Black filmmaker about one of their favorite directors, they're going to say Barry Jenkins, but you know, Moonlight was, Moonlight totally changed my life. Again, another queer black story, uh, shot in film, just absolutely lovely. It, it was like everything about it was just absolutely, it just changed the way that I even looked at movies, changed what I thought was possible about, about filmmaking and storytelling. And it was just so, has such a strong message, but it was so gentle and just very brilliant. So I really respect his work. Um, so those are two people that come to mind initially uh, as like, you know, tried and true inspirations for sure. Have y'all, I mean, I want to know about y'all's too, but you've seen Moonlight, I'm guessing. Wait, are, what are, your are thoughts? people allowed to ask us questions? Oh, is totally. It, is that, right? Well, she, she gets to because she's special. Otherwise, oh. we, we can say, well, listen to episode number, <laughs> Dane, just do it here. Three. But I, I think for Cammie, and, and, and honestly, Cammie, I'm going to deflect your question to Matt. Because Ooh, I like to make him answer questions. Cool. Same. Um, okay. So the question is influences? Yeah. Influences and if you've seen Moonlight and if you like it. Oh, I love Moonlight. It, it's incredible. And and I uh, having some things in common with the characters, but not a ton, I was fully immersed and invested in that story start to finish. It was incredible. Personally, I, you know, I, I, my head sort of goes to the documentary world first. And I would say, you know, Errol Morris, like I love goofball characters and, and the, the way he, you know, celebrates them. Um, have you ever seen Vernon, Florida? I was just going to ask that question. Cam, have you seen Vernon, Florida? No, but I will if you give it a good review. Right I now. believe <laughs> it's his first feature and it's like 55 minutes or something it's it's this really brief strange trip through one town uh in florida in like what do you think john like 85 or something like that 83 yeah and it wasn't the primary film he shot it was it was literally just like a, a secondary project that was created while he was doing something different i believe yeah definitely worth checking out i think it's on 
It's definitely on Amazon if it's not on Netflix. Cammy, it'll it'll I think it will make you challenge your philosophy on your original work as well. Be, because it made me feel the same way where does it live up to some of Morris's greatest pieces? I don't know. It doesn't have to live up to anything. But it's it's early and it's different and it's fascinating as a character study. And and when Matt showed it to me, I, I fell in love with it instantly. Yeah, I think I needed to hear that. I'll check it out. Y'all are going to make me re-upload this as soon as we have all this podcast. Uh, John, your turn. Oh, okay. Well, I, I'm I'm similarly minded in the fact that my inspirations always change. Um, I loved Moonlight. Uh, I thought it was not only beautiful, but a very, very captivating and enthralling story. Um, and it emotionally brought my soul in. Um, as far as inspirations go, you know, I'm I'm an absurdist and I like to live kind of in the weirdness of my mind. And so I always go to Michelle Gondry um, or people like, you know, Guillermo del Toro as directors who make things that are so imaginative that, that my, my, my brain waves just feel like they're aligned in their process. Uh, but that's, you know, there's, and you and I have talked about this, Cammy and Matt, you and I have talked about it, but there's that eternal conflict with, with our role as, as working filmmakers and our role as passionate filmmakers. And mine always feel slightly out of alignment right now, but for good purpose, please see episode five for my story. Um, but I feel like that's the part where Dane does a sound effect, just in case no one knew. Dane, he inserted a sound effect that's there. That's the robot voice. Uh, right. But that gets us into the passion part, because influences obviously are what push our passions. And I want to preface your passion conversation, Cammy, by saying that if I can mention Keenelan, I can mention the film, correct? Totally. Good. If I couldn't, he would just bleep it out. Um, <laughs> okay. But... Uh, your soul for taking on incredibly ambitious passion projects inspires the shit out of me because you are brave and you will take on these very challenging and very ambitious pieces that I see you do them. And I'm like, damn, if she can do that, like I can do things too. And I find that inspiring about you. And I wanted to say that. Oh, um, thanks, Dad. So let's talk passion projects. Uh, Matt's question was, what do you want to make someday? I'm open to including what you've been making. Hmm, okay. Yeah. I So what I've been making, the, the piece that you mentioned earlier, the one that linked us together, um, Summer in St. Louis, was something that I made last summer. Um, totally, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with that whole, I, I write poetry a lot, but I don't know if I'd call myself a poet right now. Um, but I wrote this poetry piece that, I was in a really, really meditative space, um, and it just kind of like, it sounds so cheesy, but the words literally just like rolled out. It felt like it was coming from somewhere else, like ancestral type things. And I just wrote it down and I was just going to let it live as a poem or even a poem that didn't even get published, but just something for myself. But, you know, I thought I haven't made something of my own in a really long time, like I left Red Bull and then the pandemic hit and then I made a lot of stuff for work, but uh, I, I didn't make something that I put my whole heart and soul into. So I made that piece over the course of a couple of days, just kind of sporadically with Papa. We shot the things and put it together and I felt really, really good about it. So, you know, from that, I think that gave me the fuel to then say, well, if I can do that, then, I mean, it's kind of like a big jump, I guess, but if I can do that, I could probably do a short film. 
And by a total miracle, which maybe if we have time, I can tell the story of how I came across this sum of money, but um, pretty much checked my E-Trade account and saw that I'd accidentally been uh, hoarding stocks from Tesla from when I left when I was 22. And it was just sitting there, a lot of money, uh, at least for me. So I thought, all right, let me use half of this to make a movie because why not? Uh, I'm not getting any younger. The days are not guaranteed. Um, so I made a film, I wrote a film called Keeneland, which is named after the neighborhood that I grew up in that is called Keeneland with a D, but I got rid of that part so that it was different. I don't know. And yeah, shot that. You guys know the story, of course, along with Retriever. You guys obviously helped me put it together, told me the things I needed to have, that I needed to have an AD, which I didn't even know that that was a thing, brought on the right people and actually made it happen. So that I'm really, really like so thrilled about when I think about it, I get goosebumps because it was just such a fun process. And yeah, it's just like, I, I did the thing, like little me, the, the version of me that lived in Keeneland growing up, which is why I named it that, uh, would be really, really proud of me right now for having made that. So that's why I kind of named it to honor that little me inside somewhere that would have been really jazzed to know that I made a movie later on in life. Um, so that I'm really, really excited about. It's still being edited. Jazzy Kettenacker, who did Summer in St. Louis, is cutting it together. Muhammad Austin, Mastermind, is doing the score for it. And he is a genius. Like, he is so, so good. Music is his first language, first, second, and third language. He's just, God, I, I can't even speak the way that he speaks through music. He's, he's that good. So he's doing the score. I've heard some stuff. It sounds awesome. And you know, I'm, I'm hoping by the end of the summer, we'll have something to be able to even show you guys. Uh, but that's what's going on right now. And that's where all my focus is going. And I do want to answer your question as far as what I want to make in the future. But my mind is so, is so Keeneland. Like when I close my eyes, I see, I see that word. <laughs> so that's like where my, where my mind is at right now. First of all, congratulations on selling high on Tesla. Well, thank you. <laughs> Probably going to zero, right? It was yeah. It was great. <laughs> I, I let's just say I had I had the stocks when they were like thirty bucks, and when I checked, they were like nine hundred <laughs> or something. It was pretty great. <laughs> uh, no, that's. I mean, it 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 takes guts, like John says. You know, especially when there's there's you you have to be your own validation for some of this stuff. You know, you you have to believe in the idea because. There's nobody else who's going to, and and you have to motivate everything that happens, uh, and it takes a lot. And you were ambitious. It was a, it was a that I, I was chicken littling as you were preparing because it was a five day shoot, right? Uh, I think it ended up being four days. Four days? Oh, yeah, that's right. You guys brought it down, but I I remember being so nervous about because I, I get really really protective of other people's like like uh, making an ad okay. You know, and and you start to worry about are they gonna is, is that everything gonna go good? Are locations gonna be okay? Are are people gonna get out on time? And because when it's somebody else's money that's at stake, it just feels different than my flooded uh, rowboat in the side of the lake. Um, but I was I don't know I, I when you finished and not only just finished but then went on to convince uh, Jazzy and Lucas to to bring the project into into the post process. Um, I was I was I was very impressed. I'm very excited to see a first pass, and I'm even more excited to hear what Muhammad does with it. Um, I feel like again to reiterate, Mastermind is amazing, 
And he's honestly probably worth an entire an entire episode um, just in conversation about the creative process and speaking through music. And, and as a human, you know, is, is, a, is another creator, just as a person who's, who, who day-to-day functions as a maker of things. He's got so many ideas. Cool. Well, we're about at the time when we normally wrap up here, John, what do you think? Should we, uh, is there, is there territory you wanted to explore that we haven't? No, I, I think that what excites me about you, Cammy, and you know this for me, is that I feel like the world has yet to see what you're capable of creating. And I especially feel that way when it comes to the world that I'm familiar with, which is this, the world of 15s and 30s and 60s, and what are oftentimes viewed as meaningless ads by the masses, but I see as opportunities to create little stories and to do them in ways, ideally for brands that we find interesting or meaningful or important to us in some unique way, in hopes that somebody else who feels the same maintains that same belief. Um, and I, I'm excited for the opportunities that we have ahead, um, both some of the things that we're co- co-bidding right now and some projects that are you know, not even in uh, our thought process yet. I just, I'm excited to see what you create the more tools that you're given to create with. And that's my, that are, those are my wishes for 2022. If this airs in 2023, <laughs> there. Now you can just dub out the two with the three. Perfect. Just use the plugin. <laughs> Dane, could we get a version of um, our intro with the robot voice too? Like, could we just work in the robot voice uh, for everything John said? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Cammy, we normally just end these with something stupid, but I want to give you um, the the ability to end this by by setting the tone for Dane's mix. Guide us through an acoustic experience, and then when you say done, the episode it ends. Huh. Okay. Wait. Hold on. Guide you through an acoustic experience. I'm like, do you want me to sing a cappella or just say some things? Just describe the kinds of sounds, the soundscape that Dane is building as we draw ourselves into the conclusion of episode number X. Okay. Okay. Well, first of all, I wanted to thank you for your words. Those meant a lot to me. I'm a words person, so thank you, John, Um, and Matt, and Dane. Uh, As far as an acoustic experience, hmm. You know, I'm going to go, I'm going to go cityscape. It's super duper windy and pleasant. The wind chimes on my front porch, they're just knocking into each other, so there's a nice little sound of that going through the air. We hear some sirens because it's St. Louis, but we also hear the wind going through the grass, leading us into different corners of the south side that we've yet to discover, uh, all the way out to Maplewood into the garage where John is right now. And now you hear me knocking on his door to bother him about some things. Um, and I think, I think that's where we can end it. Bingo. Boom. <laughs>